we return for a fall series in the Gospel of John. Now, earlier in the year, we looked at John chapters 1 through 6. I'm jumping to the end of chapter 8, which makes you think, well, what happened to chapter 7 and 8? If you've been around long enough that you might remember, or maybe you have a note in your Bible, or you keep a record of which sermons have been preached so you don't just accidentally keep re-preaching the same passages. We preached this in 2018. So, so this morning, I'm going to really give a summary of the claims uh, that Jesus makes in John 7 and 8 in order to prepare us for the sermon series which comes in October and November, looking at, at John chapter 9 and following. So we're here in the Gospel of John. Jesus claims that authority for himself through the ministry of the Father, that he really is the Son of God, the rescuer of sinners. In John 7, he goes to the temple, and the religious leaders begin to see his public ministry, and they, we, we now begin to see opposition to the ministry of Jesus grow. Open opposition that by the end of what I read this morning will be attempts to kill Jesus. And so listen to the claims of Jesus, even those brought in the challenges. I'm going to read John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. This is John 8, 48. The Jews answered Jesus, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Let's come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you praise for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who announces to us that he is our redeemer, our rescuer. And yet, Lord, we hear the, the accusations brought against Jesus, and we want to defend him here. But, Lord, when we hear the accusations in our lives, we are tempted to sli slip away, to turn away from the claims of Jesus. So, Lord, for those of us that, that resist the authority of Jesus... Give him complete control of our lives. For those that, that wonder if what Jesus says could be true, let them see in your gospel 
the message that you are the God who rescues. Let them see the truth of Jesus' claims. Lord, we come because we are people who need to hear from you. So we come listening to your word. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. I'm intrigued by businesses that label themselves or their services as world famous. I'd like to imagine an intrepid traveler sent around the world to villages and cities asking questions like, have you heard of KFC's original recipe chicken? So that once they find enough people in a wide enough variety of places, they can honestly label themselves as world famous. But apparently that's not how advertising works. You can just register the phrase world famous without any actual research. Although one of my vivid memories of visiting the the Giza pyramids in Egypt is to turn around and just across the street, like the distance Marsh Road is from us, and there's a KFC. So, I mean, according to the Great Sphinx, the KFC is world famous. But really, all you have to do is just put the the word world famous in front of your product or register it as part of your business's name, that you are the world famous clothing services. You're the world-famous tattoo parlor. Or, or maybe this one, this might be my new favorite, maybe because I think it, this should be world-famous. The world-famous hamburger dog. It's hamburger meat shaped to fit in a hot dog bun. I mean, when you've got that extra hot dog bun and you're like, what am I going to do with this? Because you ran out of hot dogs? The hamburger dog. It's world-famous. But it really seems that you can almost say whatever you want about your business. Calling yourself world famous doesn't make it true. Yeah, maybe it gets you to pull out a hot dog bun and try their product, but we need something other than the testimony of the owner in order to convince us. When we look at John chapters seven and eight, we are focused on the identity of Jesus. Because he steps forward to reveal who he is, and then he's challenged in his claims. Is he who he claims to be? The Son of God, the Word made flesh. And on whose authority are we supposed to believe him? I mean, can't he just step forward and say whatever he wants? To claim to be the Son of God doesn't actually make you the Son of God. Anybody could make the claim. Here in John 8, the conflict is growing. Jesus had just told his opponents, look look back in, in John 8, he had just told them that they are children of the devil. That's verse, verse 44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. You, you, you say God is your father, but in reality, the devil is. Is your father. He just told them that they don't belong to God. That's verse 47. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. He's in the temple courts telling observant Jews who are bringing sacrifices here at the time of festival, who have traveled from around the empire to show their religious obedience. He's telling them, You're children of the devil. You don't belong to God. And so that's why, verse 48, they answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? 
we see the challenge that they bring to him. Now, when we hear the word Samaritan, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, you might be primed to hear this as a positive reference. Because when was Jesus in Samaria? Well, you can think back to John chapter 4. What was Jesus' ministry in Samaria? To speak to a woman of a town in Samaria, to offer her living water, to give her the gift of eternal life. And then that message was spread by this woman through the whole village that they come to believe. And so we might read the word Samaritan and think, oh yeah, they're the, they're the people that respond to the gospel. But, but if you've read through the gospel of John before, you know that that's not how the Jews in Jerusalem viewed the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. It was racially motivated. They're not pure Jews. They're a mixed race. It was religiously motivated. The, the Samaritans in the eyes of the Jews were heretics who worshipped on a false mountain, who, who, who wouldn't truly worship God. And so the, the Jews in Jerusalem don't want to believe that another Jew could make such outrageous claims as Jesus is making. So let's Let's make him an other. He must be a Samaritan because no God-honoring Jew would say the things he said. He must be one of them. He must be something, someone other. Now, these kinds of claims are still made today. Not only does the church remain racially segregated within, that we've kind of chosen to do it that way, but the challenge from the world is that Christianity is unacceptable. I mean, they wouldn't use the phrase that we're Samaritans, but they would say, non-Christian friends and neighbors, and maybe this is actually the way you think, that Christians, I mean, what you believe is just kind of gross. I mean, it, it's, it's so other. I, I wouldn't even want to think that that somebody who lives in my neighborhood, who sends kids to the same schools my kids go to, would believe that kind of nonsense. So that kind of claim is still made today, that Christianity feels out of step, that following Jesus is terrible. So people, perhaps this is you, feel like you can just toss Christianity aside and walk away. But not only do they, they say that Jesus must be a Samaritan, what else do they say in verse 48? He must be demon-possessed. Now, calling Jesus as a Samaritan is unique to this passage, but calling him demon-possessed, I mean, that happens repeatedly in all of the Gospels. He says something, he does something powerful, and people say, well, that kind of power could only either come from God or from the devil. And since we don't want to let Jesus have power from God, the only other option available is that he is demon-possessed. He's doing remarkable things, feeding the thousands. And yet, how could he do this? They see the power, but they don't want to give Jesus any credit. Today, people look at Christianity as evil, as damaging, as destructive. Actually, maybe you would say that any religious claim is destructive. Any claim to follow after one teacher or one God, well, that has to be rejected out of hand. Maybe you wouldn't use the phrase demon-possessed. You would just call it evil and destructive. 
And yet Jesus responds then. Look at verse 49. I am not possessed by a demon. He, he's rejecting out of hand their claims. Even though he doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan, he's, he's saying, the, 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 you're, you're claiming I'm demon-possessed because you don't even want to you don't even want to give me enough credit that, that, that I could be Jewish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this claim by telling you directly, I am not possessed by a demon. And then Jesus offers them hope. Look at what he says in verse 51. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I mean, this is the kind of hope that he offered to the woman of Samaria, that she could have living water. She had come with a bucket to draw water from the well, and she begs for it. Well, then, then give me this living water, this gift of eternal life. When, when Nicodemus arrived asking Jesus what he was teaching, Jesus told him that he must be born again, that God would give the gift of eternal life to all who believe. And yet the religious leaders, they, they only can see the idea that Jesus is talking about physical, bodily death. He says, if you keep my word, meaning if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you believe what I say is true, then you will never see death, and they're, they're just incredulous. That this doesn't make any sense. This is nonsense. Now, actually, I think some people today reject the Bible using the same kind of logic. The logic that well, I mean, I haven't actually, like, read it or really examined its claims, but, but I can just reject the Bible because Christians claim to take the Bible literally, and there are so many things in the Bible that we can't, that I just can't believe. Now, on the one hand, yes, I want to admit that we do believe the Bible is literally the Word of God, that Jesus is actually standing and having this conversation with religious leaders in Jerusalem in the first century. But, but if somebody says to you, you know what, I don't take the Bible literally. I take the Bible seriously. It, it's usually code that they don't. I, to take the Bible literally as truth doesn't mean I take every statement in it as if it's literal. You take each statement as it's meant to be interpreted. So if God says, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't think that, that God literally is stuck caring for stinky sheep all the time. Because I understand that language works metaphorically. A metaphor is not literal, it's literary. But of course, it's supposed to work that way. But to reject Jesus because you want to reject the claims of the Bible, that it couldn't possibly be true, is to do the same thing the Jews are doing here. Jesus says, you will never see death. I don't believe it. I see people die. Therefore, Jesus needs to be rejected. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Because if you've been reading the Gospel of John, you know he's offering something greater than, than escaping physical death. He's offering life after death, life eternal, hope in this life that you'll have a relationship with God forever. So to take the Bible seriously means, yes, we read much of it literally. Jesus is a literal flesh and blood human in this conflict with these religious leaders. But when he offers them eternal life, it's not that they would never physically die. He's offering them true, eternal, spiritual life. 
And yet they respond when he says this, verse 52. Now we know that you are demon-possessed because you make this kind of claim, and even Abraham himself died. See, this conflict is focused on Jesus' identity. Who is he? But it also, it it forces us to, to wrestle with the question, who can we trust to tell us about Jesus? We've seen the challenge, but what kind of confirmation could we expect to find about who Jesus is? Who could tell us? If he just steps up and says he's world famous, do we take his word for it? Jesus, yes, we are expected to be people who keep his word, but not merely because he says it to us, because of the one who sent him, the one who tells us who he is. Look, Look at what Jesus said in verses 49 and 50. He rejected the claim that he was possessed by a demon, and then he continues, verse 49, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. See, Jesus says, you don't just have to take my word for it. The one you claim as your father is the one who glorifies me. He's the one who sent me. It's on his authority that I stand here, that I make these kind of claims, that I, that I perform the miracles that I do. And yet when they, when they challenge him, that you, what do you think? You're better than Abraham? Abraham who died? You're better than he is? And they, they say in verse, verse 53, who do you think you are? Actually, that's the perfect question to ask. That's, that's the, we're actually getting to the very heart of the issue. It, it, literally in, the, in, the, in the, the Greek that John wrote, it's what do you make yourself to be? Like, have, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? It, it's, not just, it's not just about his intellectual knowledge. It's what are you making yourself out to be? And in answer to that question, to say that, that, that when they, they ask, whom are you making yourself? It's as if Jesus says, nothing. I'm not making myself into anything. It's the Father who is doing all of this. See, I could call myself world famous, but that doesn't make it true. A testimonial to oneself maybe isn't reliable. But if God in heaven says it, then we are forced to listen. It's the Father who glorifies Jesus. That's what he says. Look at verse 54. In response to this question, who do you think you are? What are you making yourself to be? Jesus says, verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. I mean, I could print out a certificate that declares me to be the self-attested greatest person on earth. I think many of you would object. I mean, a few of you might kind of nod your heads and go along and say, oh, okay, I'll go with it. Mike's nodding very vigorously here at the front. (laughs) My wife, no. Because if I claimed it for myself, you would look and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Kevin. Do you think you are the greatest ever? In some sense, 
Jesus, he actually, on his own authority, could make that kind of claim, but he is humble enough to say, I'm not the one who declares me to be the greatest who stands before you. It's the Father in heaven, the one whom you call Father. He's the one who who has given me dignity and honor and glory before all time, now and forevermore. Jesus is the King. He is the one sent by God to rescue us from our sins. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. But my Father is the one who glorifies me. And it's here in Jesus' offer of salvation that the controversy begins to escalate. Because to be someone in need of rescue is not a place we ever want to be. When he says that that anyone who keeps his word will never see death, that that incites them to, to even greater frustration. When he claims that it's God himself who sent him for this purpose, that makes them even madder. Because to to acknowledge who Jesus is, the greatness of Jesus, means we have to humble ourselves. So we don't get to print out the certificate that says greatest person ever. We're confronted in the truth of God's word as a desperate sinner, helpless in the face of our sin. See, the words of eternal life should have been received with hope. But we all hate to admit that we need rescue. We don't like to be humbled. And so even if God the Father announces this, we wonder if it could be true. And so Jesus, having, having been challenged by them, showing that the confirmation of the truth comes not from himself but from the Father in heaven, now offers an even greater claim. When they ask, are you greater than our father Abraham? When they say, Abraham, the one who died, Actually, they, if they'd been reading in their Bibles clearly, they would have heard that phrase again and again, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, they, I mean, they lived a long time, each of them, but they're dead, so like he's no longer their God. No, he is their God because they are still with him. See, they should have understood that the, the claim to be the children of Abraham was the, to, to know that, that even though Abraham died, because of his faith in God, in the rescue that God would provide, that he was with God, even then. And so Jesus, in response to their question, do you think you're greater than Father Abraham? Look at what he, what he says. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. Jesus is putting himself way above Abraham. This is not something you're allowed to do. Not in the temple, not in a Jewish home, not in a Jewish worship service. Because Abraham is the father of the nations. He is the one whom God chose and through whom all of the blessings flow to, to everyone who believes in him. And so there is no one that could possibly be greater than Abraham. I mean, they actually thought that was a rhetorical question. Are you greater than Abraham? No, because no one is greater than Abraham. You don't even need to answer it, but Jesus does answer it. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And do you know what? He saw it, and he was glad. Because in the Old Testament, we have the, the, the 
picture that Abraham, in taking Isaac for sacrifice, believed that God would raise him from the dead. Abraham anticipated the coming kingdom that God would bring. He knew a Messiah, a rescuer would come. He looked forward, he saw that day, and he rejoiced. See, when, when you hear the offer of salvation, that's the response expected. God has come to rescue me? Praise the Lord. And yet when the people hear it, when the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day hear it, it makes them angry. Verse 57, you're not even 50 years old. I mean, they're, they're wildly exaggerating his age here. He's about 30. They're, they're picking a number. I mean, that's the age at which a, a priest would, reti would retire from active service in the temple. So, like, you're, you're not that old, and yet you think you've seen Abraham, who has been dead for 1,800 years? And then perhaps the biggest claim that could be made, Jesus answers them, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, notice the tense of the verb. It's not past tense. I mean, that would be a big enough claim in itself. Before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I was. Like, I was there when Abraham was born. I've been around that long. That would be a pretty big claim in itself. But to say, before Abraham was born, I am, forces them to think of the claims God makes about himself. It's reminiscent of, of God's appearance to Moses. When the people are in slavery in Egypt, God appears to Moses in the form of a, of a bush that burns but is never consumed. This is Exodus chapter 3. And he, he tells Moses, you are going to rescue my people. I've heard their cry. I will rescue them. And Moses says, okay, but I, I don't think they're going to believe me when I show up and tell them that you're coming to rescue them. Can you tell me who I should say sent me? Like, I need a business card to show to them so that they know I'm actually here with some real authority. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, when asked, what's your name? What should I tell them? Who should I say sent me? This is how God answers, Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is how you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. See, because in the original Greek of John's gospel, or in any of the languages that Jesus would have spoken this in, it's not a full sentence. I am. Keep going. You are what? But even if they missed the, the, the direct connection to the book of Exodus, which I don't think they do based on their reaction, even if they missed it and they thought, we're just waiting for the predicate, I am what? It's pretty clear he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. I am the great I am. That is my name. I am the one who from all eternity, God himself now stands in front of you. The full revelation of God, the God of Abraham. See, they understand it as a claim to divinity. I mean, what do they do? They grab rocks. I mean, they're not like throwing driveway stones at him to chase him away. They're going to kill him 
because he's claimed to be God. That's blasphemy in the temple. You're going to make that kind of claim? You won't get out of here alive. Well, and yet he does. I mean, maybe miraculously. I don't know. I mean, either he's just really good at tag and you can never catch up to him, or he miraculously escapes. Because they understand the claim that he's making. What does Jesus make of himself? Nothing. What does God tell us about him? The Father declares him to be the great I am, the one eternal and co-equal with him in power and authority. What does Jesus make of himself? Nothing. He became a baby. Helpless. In your place and mine. What does Jesus make of himself? Nothing. He gave his life. He died for your sins. He gave himself over to death, even death on a cross. Jesus makes himself nothing for us. And yet, these are familiar words if you've read through the Gospel of John. Maybe you kind of shrugged along. I mean, you knew where I was going. I mean, this is the kind of sermon that you know the conclusion because it's right there in verse 58. Jesus claims to be the great I am. You've, you've heard better preachers preach this sermon. You knew it was coming. But do you believe it? Do the claims of Jesus capture your attention? Do you rejoice in hearing this message? That God himself would step down into history to rescue me? Or, or, or are we so afraid of how people might respond? By calling us names, Samaritans, demon-possessed. I mean, they don't use those words today. But they mock the claims of Christ and set it aside. See, when we see Jesus as the great I am, when we fully understand the centrality of this good news, then we can follow Christ in joy. They ask, what do you make of yourself? Who do you think you are? But maybe the question that you need to walk away with today is, what do you make of him? Who do you think he is? He is the Lord of all, God himself here to rescue us. He offers us hope. He says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this gospel message. I pray for those that have listened today that, that feel uncomfortable with these claims. Lord, that they would not be able to turn away from the truth of your gospel. The truth announced to us by the message of John. The truth pressed into our lives through the power of your spirit at work in the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that, that those who do not believe would today receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, for those of us that, that follow Christ, that, that have declared him to be Lord, I pray that that would be evident in our lives, in our joy and excitement about who he is and what he's done, our willingness to stand up 
for him with boldness, even when, when the claims of Christ are pushed to the side. Lord, I pray that you would work in our own hearts, that you would work in our lives, that we would, would follow after Christ, that we would acknowledge him to be the great I am, the Savior, the King, our rescuer from heaven. Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen.